Connections BWB, we are, as she said, we are a critical access behavior healthcare agency. And basically what that means is for um, anyone who is experiencing difficulties with a mental health issue, um, we are a 24-hour, 365-day, seven days a week, you know, um, access point for them. Um, so yes, even in the snow and the ice, we have someone on call Today is me. <laughs> we have someone on call who, who answers the phone and answers questions and, and get to the, to the clients as quickly as possible. Um, one of the um, services we, we provide is individual and family outpatient therapy. And what that is is we have several therapists on staff. Um, we also have a psychiatrist on staff and a psychologist on staff. And basically the individual therapy is where the person come in and meet individually with a therapist. Um, our therapists are either licensed um, clinical therapists or they're licensed clinical social workers. Um, so they, they usually meet with them once a week. Um, they develop a plan to try and help them learn coping skills. The one thing that if you don't take anything from here today, the one thing I like, I always want everyone to understand when I do education is that mental illness is not like um, getting a cold or it's not like getting the flu. You, you, you're not going to cure it. A person who has bipolar disorder, a person who is schizoaffective, a person, a child who is react, who's having reactive attachment disorder, a child who has opposition to fight disorder, a child who has mood disorder, those, those disorders will be with them for the rest of their lives. You, we can't fix them. They're not broken. So we can't fix them. But what we can do with them is assist them with learning coping skills. Um, the best thing you can do for a person, especially a person that's mentally ill, is give them back their power. And so that's what we do. We give them back their power. It's, it's all about them. Everything that we do with our clients person-centered. And it's centered around that person. It's not what I want for that person. It's not what you want for that person. It's not what mom or dad wants for that person. It's what that person wants for themselves. Um, and they are so used to having people in their lives tell them what they cannot do. So when they come in and we ask them, what is it that you want? You know, what do you want for yourself? You know, in the beginning of treatment, a lot of times we'll get, well, it doesn't matter. They're going to do what they want to do anyway. You know, whatever y'all want to do is what y'all going to do anyway. Well, no, that's not true. This is about you. Even if it's a teenager, even if it's a child, this is about you, you know. Um, if, you are, if you're a child who's been fighting a lot in school, but you tell me you want to be a doctor, okay, let's talk about how to get you there. You know, it may or may never happen, but it's our responsibility to assist them with getting there. So meeting with an individual therapist in the beginning, that, that helps them learn how to develop those coping skills and to get there. And then we bring in the family, and we have the family therapy. And usually that's to assist the family with assisting that person with getting there. If that person has um, some substance abuse issue, in addition to some mental health issues, every night you have to treat one before you can treat the other. And in most cases, you want to get the mental health you know, issues under control because a lot of time the mental health issues is what's leading to the substance abuse issues. People tend to self-medicate and that's what lead to, lead to the, the um, substance abuse issue, especially with um, marijuana and with um, oxycotton or hydrocodone. They're really just self-medicating. Okay. Um, the other service that we offer is called intensive in-home. And this, this is one of the services that I actually love that the state came up with. Um, I'm not usually fond of the stuff that the state tells us we need to do. <laughs> but in this case, um, I actually love this service because it takes, it takes the therapist and it takes two qualified professionals and it puts them into the home. 
So the family is not coming out of their home, they're not coming to our office, but they're getting their services in the home where most of the behaviors and most of the issues are happening. And when we're able to get in there, we're able to get in there and work with the family. We're, we're able to assist the family with seeing that um, Johnny may be having a behavior issues, but all of Johnny's behaviors may not be all Johnny. You know, a lot of times, you know, they, someone will bring a child to us and say, this child is having bad behaviors, can you, can you fix him? Can you take care of him? And then you get in there and you find out dad might be an alcoholic, mom might get on, on the computer at night and never pays the children any attention, you know, and so we have to work on that. We work on parenting skills with them. Um, or it could just be that Johnny is having a difficult time. Johnny might be in, you know, a preteen. He might just be going through those angst, you know? And so that's what works so well because we get them in there and we have three people working with them. And we have, you know, we have family sessions and they have individual sessions and they take the children out and they introduce them to different things in life. So that really, really, really helps a lot. Um, we also have a psychologist on staff that actually does IQ testing. And we, a lot of times when we cannot figure out, especially in school, what's going on with the child, we'll have them tested. Um, we have found out nine times out of 10, it's because the child is too smart for what the school is giving them, right? So you have a child who's completing their work and then getting into trouble, you know? And so in cases like that, we then go into the school and we'll educate the teachers. Because schools and Sometimes DSS and other agencies, they are not as versed or understanding of mental illness as they should be. Um, society is not as accommodating to a person who's mentally ill as they should be. Um, one of the good things Mecklenburg County has started doing is they've actually started training the police now to understand mental illness. Because when the police go into a home and there's a person tearing up that home, but that person is having a psychotic episode, we don't, we don't want to get a call saying the police killed this person. You know, we want to send a police in there who understands about mental illness and wh what's the next step, what has to happen, where does this person need to go, who do we need to call. Um, my business partner, Angela Bunting, she actually assists um, the, the NAMI people a lot of times in, in conducting those trainings. Um, and and you, we'll find that with the policemen, a lot of them will say, wow, we didn't know that. You know, we're afraid for our life, but this person really had no intentions of harming us. You know, they, they, we're trying to talk to them, but that voice in the back of their head is telling them we're trying to hurt them. So once they start to lear learn a lot about the different diagnosis, we find that we have a lot less incidents of our clients getting arrested. You know, they will put them in handcuffs, but most of the time now they'll take them over to behavior health as opposed to taking them in jail. There are a lot of mentally ill people in jail a lot of mentally ill people in jail that are that basically they're not getting any type of help. They're not getting any type of treatment and they're not getting their medication. So we tried to go in and advocate, let's make sure we get folks what they need, you know, because the the crime may not have been a crime that that person understood. Um, so we, we are, we're educating in that way. Our psychologist, she educates um, our staff on testing and the results and what does that mean and how to work with the child, children once she's done the testing. Um, we also have a psychiatrist on staff, Dr. Shaw. He is, I, I might be tooting my own horn, but I think he is one of the best psychiatrists in, in, in Charlotte. Um, 
he, he, he sees our patients. He does full, psychological evalu full, full psychiatric evaluations on them, and he may or may not prescribe medication. He is not a psychiatrist that believes medication solves everything. Not everyone needs medication, you know. Not everyone needs medication. Um, not every adult will react favorably to medication. Um, so he actually takes the time, you know, to really, really sit down with them, listen to them, kind of understand what's going on. If it's a child, he has the guardian come in. And so it's just, it, 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 we try to wrap them around with all the services that we can provide. Um, we try to make sure that we, when we're, when we're bringing a child in, that we have everybody involved. Um, just the other day, we brought a child in, and, and it was just wonderful, because I hardly ever see this, but I had the foster mother there, I had the mother there, I had the DSS guardian there, I had the guardian at Lightham there, I had the DJJ officer there. So we had everybody there to talk to Dr. Shaw about this one child, so that we could adequately you know, see what was going on and, and, and get a really good picture for what this child's life has been. Because mom is gonna tell you one thing, right? Mom is gonna tell you one thing. But there's one thing I do know in life is that nine times out of 10, DSS does not move your children out of the home because you've been doing everything right. You know, it just doesn't happen. DSS does not want to take children. That's not their goal. But their, but their responsibility is to protect them. So. When we, get, when we get a mom in there, of course, we're going to get a totally different story from what we're going to get from the DSS worker or what we're going to get from the judge's report or what we're going to get from the adjudication papers when they took custody. So that, when, when, when we get that, it's really great that we have everyone in the room because a lot of times that mom can really at that point see what her part in all of this was. You know, sometimes they see it but won't admit it, but they, <laughs> but they tend to see it. Um, one of the other um, programs that we do, um, we work with fathers, and we are really advocating to get um, the fathers back into the lives of the children. And so we offer these fatherhood empowerment workshops. We call them FEW. And it is based on the National Fatherhood Initiative. Um, the training came directly from, from that initiative. Um, and so we bring the fathers in, and it's a 12-week session, and we work with them on getting back into your children's lives. Why it is so important for you to go to your children's doctor's appointment. That's not just a mother thing, oh, she, she's the mother, she should take them. No, it's important for you to understand what's going on with your child. Um, as we all know in here who are parents, they don't come with instructions. You know, <laughs> I was waiting for my instructions. I'm still waiting. <laughs> so they don't, come for, they don't come with instructions. But women tend to pick up on the parenting thing just a little bit better than the men, usually, usually. So we give them a class on, you know, the developmental milestones. What should your child be doing at 2? What should your child be doing at 12? Is it healthy for your child to be so interested in boys when they are 9? You know, what, what, what should grades look like? When should they walk? When should they talk? Um, what, what, what does Maslow hierarchy of needs says, you know, as opposed to the developmental milestones of, of, of Erickson? So it's, we, we kind of take them through all of that. And I find that the men love it because now they can go home and they can tell their wife, well, shoot, he's two and he's not talking. Something is wrong, you know? I, something is really, really wrong. I need to understand. So they, they really feel empowered when they lead these workshops. And they just, I mean, some of them come back 
and they want to come back as mentors to the, to the new set of men we have in. So that, that's, really, that's really, really great because when you have two men talking about their kids, you know, there's nothing better. Talking about hair and where to go to get hair. You know, I, I, I told one gentleman, I said, you know, you have a teenager. And I said, you want to know the secret to, getting, to, to just letting her talk without feeling like you're badgering her? He said, what? I said, take her to the nail salon. <laughs> I said, take her to the nail salon, go for a pedicure. Sit down next to her. I said, she'll start talking like a river. She'll tell you everything. I used to get everything out my daughter in the nail salon. I mean, and, 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 and she, when she was in middle school, I would sit down. We would go to the nail salon. I would sit down, and she'd start talking. Mama, you know this boy, such and such in my class? He said he's in that MS-13 gang. You know, so I'm making notes. Okay, she needs to stay away from this person. You know? <laughs> but that's, you know, and, and she, because they just start talking. They have, they have no idea you're taking mental notes. But I, I, he, was, he came back to me, and he was like, you know, Miss Wright, that was great. He said, my feet look good. <laughs> So it's just, I love to see the men get involved. It's just, you know, and, and I think men get a bad rap. I think, you know, people want to be, oh, they are no good. They're deadbeat dads. They're, but women, we have to, you know, we have to admit that a lot of times we have some, some issues with it too, you know. And so during their 12-week sessions, at some point, my business partner and I bring in their counterpart. Their, their children's mom, and we, we, we try to get them to understand when you cut your baby's parent, father out of their lives, you're hurting nobody but that child. You're not hurting him. You know, you might be hurting his heart a little bit, but physically and emotionally, you're hurting your child, okay? If you're, if you're concerned that he's not paying child support, let the court system handle that but let him see his child. If he wants to be actively and there in his child life and be positive, now, of course, if it's someone, you know, who's not being positive, that's a different situation. But if he, if he wants to be a positive influence in his child life, let's, let's work on this, you know. We also talk to them about how to get along with men, you know. They're not like us. You know, two women can get along totally different from the way a woman and a man get along. So we try to work them through that. We have to make sure that we, we get them to understand that men are not mind readers, even though we want them to be. You should know what I'm thinking. You should know how I feel. They don't. <laughs> they don't. They don't know. So you have to tell them. If you want him to pick the child up at a certain time and stop being late, tell him that. Tell him you have a problem with the fact that he's late because it's throwing you late. Or it's making you late to work. Or it's, or it's, it's ruining your day because now you're mad all day. You know, tell him. You know, it'll change. It'll change. So we go through that. It's a 12-week, like I said, it's a 12-week um, program for each father. We've had fathers come back. We have fathers volunteer to, to help with other fathers. Um, one of the things we're working on now is teenage fathers. We're looking to get a teenage father group going um, and identifying young men um, that have, you know, have children out there and, and between the ages of 13 and 21. We really want to get them in and get them to start working with their children and, and, and how to understand that, you know, you, it's okay to buy your child a pair of sneakers from Walmart. It doesn't have to be Jordans because the money you pay for that Jordan, you could have bought that child four outfits, you know, and some Pampers. <laughs> so that's really great. Now, my love child of the entire agency is foster care. Um, I started working in foster care in New York. And when I used to work for AT&T, 
and I liked working for AT&T, but um, I quickly discovered that business was not really what I wanted to do. And, you know, it's amazing. My grandmother knew it from the time <laughs> I entered college and told her I was getting a degree in marketing. <laughs> she was like, girl, are you sure? Because, <laughs> you know, you were always bringing home the neighborhood stray kids that nobody else would bring home. You sure this is what you want to do? <laughs> so I said, yeah, I'm going to go in advertisement. I'm going to be on TV. And I'm going to, you know, I just had this, this, this I had no talents. <laughs> But you just could not tell me I wasn't going to be doing all this great stuff. Well, I quickly dis discovered I, 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 I can't do this. <laughs> so I took a $17,000 pay cut, and I went to a, a, agent, a foster care agency in New York called McMahon Services for Children. And they actually still had me working in marketing per se because I was doing all the recruitment of the foster homes. And so... Um, but I'm the type of person, I'm always curious about something else. I want more. I enjoyed, you know, recruiting the foster homes, but then I missed the foster parents. After I brought them in, I was like, what happened to them? Where are they? What's going on? And I would peek my head into the trainings. And so one day I was peeking into the training, and this guy, Larry Guevara, he said, come on in, girl. Come on in. And I've been at it ever since. <laughs> so it's, you know, and he said, you got a knack for training. You should, you should come on in and get into this. So I started there. And... And working foster care in New York, I've seen everything. Um, well, almost everything. <laughs> I've, I've, I've seen, I mean, you guys have no idea what goes on in the city sometime. Um, I've, seen, I've seen babies that was this big, you know, shaken because they, they were born with heroin in their system. Or they were born with cocaine in their system. I've seen young girls just in the hospital totally totally messed up because mom prostituted her out. And I've seen moms give birth to babies and just walk away. Um, I've, I've went to foster homes and had to step over the outline of a body because someone just got killed in front of her door. Um, most of, you know, New York is a big city where just about everyone lives in high-rise building or, or some type of um, projects. So you kind of see all of that. But I will admit, I was not ready when I moved down here. I was not ready for the massive cases of sexual abuse by the hands of a family member that I saw once I moved down here. And my very first case was a young lady who had some mental retardation. And um, she was severely sexually abused by her father, who just happened to have the same last name as me. <laughs> But she was sexually abused, uh, very, very sexually abused by her father. And so that, that for me, took a lot of getting used to. Um, I remember sitting on the stands, trying to testify on her behalf, and just, you know, bawling my eyes out. Just, I mean, just crying like a river. And I have the judge looking at me going, ma'am, you're the professional. You got to pull it together. But how do you pull something like, you know, you're sitting, you go, well, how do you expect me to pull that together? So... I learned to, to, to cope with it, and I learned to get around it, and I learned to work with it, because I had to realize that I needed to protect this child, and I needed to make sure that he went to jail. So I needed to pull it together really quickly and make sure that I got across the things that this young lady was saying this man did to her. So um, under foster care, we, we work with a lot of children. Most of, most of the children that we get are referred to us by DSS. Um, we have quite a few teenagers that comes in, but we also get younger ones. I've, I've placed as young as three and as old as 
18, 19. They can stay in foster care up to 21 um, if they need to, especially if they're in school. Um, but usually there's a common thread there. And like I say, DSS doesn't go in and, and take people kids just because they want to take your children. Um, they investigate. They seek out people. They seek out other family members. Um, with this economy is just not working. It's just not happening. Um, a lot of times, on a daily basis from DSS, I get anywhere from four to five referrals, most of the time for sibling groups two, three, ages five, 10, nine, you know. Um, sometimes we have children that have severe behavior issues. Um, and most of the time, those children, I place them in what's called a therapeutic foster home. And we, ex we train the foster parents to work specifically with the kids, especially the therapeutic kids. They, they get training. Um, I actually do the training myself because, I, like I tell you, this is, this is really where my heart is, foster care. Um, I was not a foster child. I did not grow up in foster care. But I felt like I did because my mother did not raise me. My grandmother did. And so I was treated well. But to me, when you're not living with your parent, it, it's, it's something different. You, you understand, you know, and oh, my mother would, would fly in from New York and she would be dressed all beautiful and she would, you know, fly through and fly back out and, you know, and I'd be like, who is this person? You know, why, why, why won't she stop and take more time? And, you know, but it, it's in the end, I would not have given anything in the world to have been raised in to Orangeburg, South Carolina. I love the fact that I was raised in Orangeburg, South Carolina and not Bronx, New York. Um, I don't think I would be where I am today had my situation had been reversed. So I appreciate the fact that my grandparents took the time to really, to really put time into me. I'm the youngest of five. So they, by the time I came along, they learned a few things. <laughs> so I couldn't get away with anything, but I was a good child. So I was, I was one of the easy ones. But I would not have given, I wouldn't give that back for anything in the world. But I do understand how a child feel when they're not in the home with their parent. Um, or when you have a parent that just seems like they do not care. And, it, you know, and for years I really, I thought my mother just didn't care. She did. She did. My mother loved me to death. But she had to do what she knew was best. And I think that's what most parents want. They have to do what's best for their children. And if at this point where, you know, I can't do right, I need to make sure that someone else is taking care of them. Um, sometimes they get that revelation a little too late, and DSS has come in and take custody at that point. But it's never intended to be long-term. DSS never intended to take anyone's children from them long-term. You know, they, um, they put a plan in place, and they want you to follow this plan. And if you follow this plan and do what we say and do what the judge said, you will get your children back, you know. I've seen many success stories, many success stories where parents have gotten their children back and they're doing great. I've also seen what I call the secondary success stories where children have went on to be adopted by some of the best parents out, you know. And, and I've seen the not so success stories where the judge kept giving time after time after time, child got older and older and older, parent just didn't do what they were supposed to do, and at some point everything stopped, but the child is now 15, 16, and don't want to be adopted. So that child ends up staying in the system, you know. And, and the judges, some of them have very big bleeding hearts, and they just want to give, they want to believe that these parents, is, they're going to get it right, you know. So they keep giving chances after chances. And I understand that because you, you don't want to sell someone, even though you gave birth to this child, you're no longer considered this child's parent. 
you know. But foster parents, they provide that great secondary backup, especially therapeutic foster parents for children that's having behavior issues, um, children that's, that, that's been physically abused, children that's been sexually abused, children that's been, you know, have, have lived in a home where mom sold drugs or dad sold drugs or mom has had different guys in and out of the house or, you know, dad was, was domestic violent, you know, to, to the parent. So the foster parents are great backups. Now, I said we have two types of foster care. We have what's called therapeutic foster care. And therapeutic foster parents, they work with children that, that, that actually have the behavior issues, um, actually have the diagnosis. Um, they may have a diagnosis of opposition defiant disorder. They may be bipolar. They may, um, they may have mood disorders. They may have sub some substance abuse issues. Um, a lot of a lot of our kids um, that have been sexually abused become perpetrators themselves on, you know, on younger, younger kids. So we train foster parents to specifically work with, with, with children with those type of issues. Um, in addition to receiving the model approach to partnership and parenting training, we also give them a therapeutic foster care training. And then every quarter, we give them basically some type of therapeutic training in which either myself or Dr. Shaw or one of the therapists will come in and actually do a training. Um, we've had them do um, training. We've had Dr. Shaw come in and do training on psychotropic medications. What are the side effects, what to look for, um, how to help a child if they're having those type of issues. We've had a social worker come in and talk, talk to the foster parents about how to take care of themselves. Because being a therapeutic foster parent, if you don't take your breaks, you can, you can burn out. You can burn out really quickly because you, you're putting a lot into the children. You know, you're putting a lot into them so you can burn out. So we have someone come in and talk about how to take care of yourself. We had a nutritionist come in and show them how to fix quick meals so they're not so anxious every night trying to make sure all the kids get homework done, get in, get visits. Because that's the other thing. If the child is in DSS custody, there may be visits. And so a visit might be from 3.30 to 5.30 or from 4 to 6. And now you have to go downtown, pick that child up, bring that child back home, and it's 6 o'clock and you're just now trying to get dinner ready. You know? So we had nutritionists come in and talk about how you can make something really quick. You don't have to stop at McDonald's. You don't have to stop at Burger King. You know? Because those food right there, they add to the angst of a child. You, you feed a child at 6 o'clock at night some Burger King, and you're gonna have some issues in your house when you try to get that child to go down to bed. So we really wanna make sure that, that the parents understand about the nutritional part. Um, and then we have what's called family foster care. And family foster care is basically where DSS is taking custody of a child and or children, and they may call me and say, these children don't have any major behavior problems that we can see of right now because we're just taking them in. And a lot of times I'll get an email from DSS 10.46 in the morning saying, we have a sibling group of three who needs a placement today. <laughs> and that's what we get. And they're really good about that at about 4.45 on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> you know, they're really, really good. Um, but under most cases, those children are younger. They have less behavior issues, or we don't know what the behavior issues are at that point. And 
when the foster parents get them, if we start seeing behavior issues, then we can arrange for them to have an assessment. And we actually do that at our office, where we will have them come in and see a therapist and get an assessment to determine if this child should be treated as a therapeutic child. Um, because as a therapeutic child, number one, they're going to need high, a higher level of supervision. And then you're going to need to do different things with them because you, you really have to work on their coping skills. Um, and we may, as a therapeutic foster parent, we may actually put the intensive in-home in place along with therapeutic foster care to get them, to, to get the child basically all settled out and, and doing well. Um, I'll tell you, another thing we find with kids that are in foster care, they tend to be really smart. <laughs> they are really, really smart. I think it's just that no one has bothered to really pay attention to what's going on with them. So I've seen kids that's come into care and went from an F student to an AB student under the guidance of that foster parent. People have no idea how awesome foster parents are. I mean, because there is not enough money in this world to pay anybody to be a parent. What we do is priceless. There's no way someone, I'm, I have a 19-year-old and I'm still parenting. <laughs> and I will probably be parenting her until my eyes close. And so what we do is, as, as, as foster parents is, is take on what someone else has, has started and may not have done the best job, but probably did the best they could with what they know, depending on how they were raised. You know, but the court system in DSS says, well, you can't do this to your child. You know, you can't beat your child. You can't use a belt on your child. You cannot slap your child. You cannot punch your child. That person may have grown up like that, may have grown up with their dad punching them or their mother slapping them. But DSS in the court system said, you can't do that now. You know, DSS says a boy who's 18 cannot have sex with a girl who's 15. You know, back in the days, that, that might have been going on. Who knows? But today's day, you can't do that. You will, be, you will be tried and you will be convicted and you will be a registered sex offender. So those are the type of things that, that the foster parents are dealing with in day in and day out. And I don't mean to make it sound scary because it's not. Because when you start seeing that turn in the road, when you start seeing that difference and, and you see that light go on in that child, and, 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 and they get it and, and, and they understand, it is the best feeling in the world. By the way, I have been a therapeutic foster parent and I only did teenage girls. They had to be 16 and older because I wanted to save them for themselves. <laughs> I learned a lesson though. <laughs> no, it was great, it was great. But you know, once my, what happened was my daughter was younger, she was six, and every time I wanted to come, do well and leave, she would cry because she thought I was kicking the child out. And it started to become too much on her. So I stopped doing it and I said, you know what, let me look at this from a different angle. So I went, in, rather than doing the foster care part, I went into actually work on in the agency. I started on, on into group homes. I enjoyed that, but it got to the point where group homes wasn't really working. And they still, they don't work. They do not work. Um, because you're taking four and five kids with the same behaviors and you're putting them in one home and you're putting staff in there you know, first shift, second shift, third shift. The kid don't feel like anybody care about me because you're just getting paid because you're a staff. But in the foster home, it's something different because I see you every morning and I see you every evening. You know, I know you're going to come pick me up. I, 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 it takes me a while to get used to the fact that you're going to come pick me up, but I, I know you're going to come pick me up. I know when I get off that bus, you're going to be there. I know when I have to go to a doctor's appointment, you're going to take me, you know. 
that's a different because that says to them that, that you care, you know. And like I said, nobody can possibly pay enough money to be a parent. It's just, it's, it's just a different thing. But I have foster parents that's been doing this for 15, 16, 20 years, and, they, and the children still come back to them, you know. I'm getting married or I'm having a baby or, you know, and it's just wonderful. You know, when I get that call and, you know, from Robin or someone saying, oh, you know, such and such just called me and she's getting married, that's really, really great because that's a bond that's, that, that's a lifetime. And, you know, and you form a lifetime bond with them and you help them and, and you get them to move on in life. And what I always say to people is my thought process when my mother asked me, why in the world you want to be a foster parent? I had one answer for that. If not me, then who? You know, if, if I'm not helping this child, then who's going to help her? And if, and if I don't help her and if someone else don't help her, what's going to happen to her? You know, so yeah, I took girls. I took girls who was sexually promiscuous. I took girls who were 16, 17 years old. All my girls didn't do the best. I have had girls run away. You know, it's hard to sleep when you know your child is out there on the street somewhere. But I wouldn't change the fact that I felt like I changed something in their life. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change that for anything in the world, you know. Um, when the kids come into the office for their therapy appointments, they always want to say, is Miss Sherry here? You know, sometimes on, on, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I can't get anything done because I have to see every child that comes in because they want to come see me. But it's just, you know, when they come back and they have their report cards and they're showing me their report card and they have A's and B's and they're all excited and the foster parents say, oh, we're going to take them out for dinner, you know, to celebrate. And you just see a totally different child from that angry child that came into your office just three months ago. Is, is I, I can't even describe it. It's just something you have to experience. You know, whether it's therapeutic foster care or family foster care. You know, when you get a child who, who you took into your home and that child is hoarding food, and then one day you realize they're no longer hoarding food because they know in your house there's always going to be food. They don't have to hide food. They don't have to worry about where their next meal is coming from. You know, those, those children that when school is not in, they don't get a meal, you know. Those are the ones that when, when, when they start really, really coming to you and, and, and not necessarily they don't have to call you mom or call you dad, but when they come to you and they make you understand or they, they come to you to, to, to say, I appreciate what you've done for me. I appreciate what you're doing for me because nobody cared for me like this. You know, nobody cared for me. Um, I will be the first to admit that not all foster parents are good. I just recently placed a little 11-year-old girl in one of my foster homes that DSS had to move because her foster parents was calling her names. You know, beautiful little girl, sweet little girl. You know, a little chunky, but so what? But they were calling her fat, you know. They were calling her all kinds of stuff. And, and come on, adults, we <laughs> you're an adult, you know. And so when I read the referral, I was like, oh, I have to find this child a home because if I don't, who will? I go into that again. I go into that a lot on a daily basis. So, and, I'm, and I, I go to pick up the little girl from school, and she's a sweet little girl. And so my foster parent, she called me this morning. She was like, I don't understand why she's placed, Sherry. Why, why do they have to move her? She's so sweet. And I told my foster parent it was because of the foster parents. It, it had nothing to do with her. You know, how do you become a foster parent and then mistreat a child? I'm never going to understand that. You know, I'm very, very picky about the foster parents we take. We have 20, 22 foster parents. At this point, I could probably have 50 or 60, but I'm very, I have selected people out. I've went to people and said, I'm sorry. I, you, you're not, you could be a foster parent, but just not, not for connection. Um, 
I, I, I look for that passion in their eyes for kids. Um, when someone called me and they're interested in being a foster parent, if the first thing they start talking to me about is pay, that I end the conversation. I really do. Um, I'm so picky about foster parents that I don't even do foster care classes anymore where there's a bunch of people in a room getting trained. I don't do it like that. I do one-on-one I do -on -one foster parent training now. And I, I do what's called Deciding Together, which is a training that the state put together. And so it's, it's, it's at the foster parent, the, the prospective foster parent's rate of time. So there are books, and they go to these books, and I go in and I sit with them, and we talk about you know, what, this, what this chapter was about, what this book was about, how, how does this fit in with working with children, and what do you think, where do you see yourself in this? What did you take away from this? What are your strengths in this area? What are your needs? Because I need to know what their needs are, because just because they have needs doesn't mean we're not going to use them as a foster parent. That just means that I have to make sure that they get from my case managers the assistance they need in that area. Um, I recently had a gentleman come to me who's getting ready to adopt his grandbaby. And the other state that he's adopting from said he had to be a foster parent here first. And so DSS sent him to me. <laughs> so I've already started his training. And when I explained to him that I come out and do one-on-one -on -one training, he was floored. He said, really? And I said, yeah, because th that's the only way to get to know the foster parents. That's the only way to get to know somebody is to come out and do one-on-one -on -one training. Um, there used to be a time when I would do a group training because I had 10 or 12 families wanting to be foster parents. And by the time I got finished with the training, by the time I got finished selecting people out, I had three families that I was licensing. <laughs> so to me, it's best to get to know you directly, personally, let you get to know me personally, understand what the agency is about, understand the type of children we get, the requirements of being a foster parent, because it's not easy. It's not. You know, but it's rewarding, but it is not easy. You know, it's not easy being a parent. You know, I, I, I remember soccer practice and, and choir rehearsals and plays and, and, and just the things you do. And, and then for me, I'm, I'm one of those different type of parents. I, whatever my child get into, I'm all into it. You know, that's, that's always been me, but I only have one, right? So I'm always into it. So when, 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 when she went to MLK, and when they did the play Annie, you know, they did it several nights. And on the last night, you know, I showed up with all this food and stuff because I'm going to have a casting party. <laughs> and so the parents was like, are you crazy? <laughs> but to me, you have to show your children that you always support them. You know, always. I would show up to soccer practice, to soccer games. When it was my time to be the, the parent to bring the snacks, I had oranges and I had fruits and, you know, fruit juices. And the kids would be like, what happened to the chocolate? And the, I don't do that, sweetie. <laughs> you know, so I've always been that different type of parent, and I'm like, I was like that when I was a foster parent. I made sure I, I participated and attended everything they were in. So it's all we're looking for is just good people, and that's all I ever look for is just good people. You know, um, it, we do the same thing with our therapists. I'm very, I'm very, very cautious about the therapist you bring in because if you guys have noticed, you have those brochures with those little packets of lifesavers on it. The reason you have those lifesavers is because we, we say that anyone who works with someone with mental illness is a lifesaver. At any given time, you're going to save somebody's life, and you may not even know it. Okay, but at any given time. And if you have a therapist who is not in tune to their child or to their patient, you could have a disaster. So I am very, very, very particular about 
the therapist that we choose. I've, I've went through several doctors before I got to Dr. Shaw. We went through several medical directors. We went through several psychiatrists because when, when I have patients coming out back to back to back saying, that person have bad bedside manners, that person is rude, that person is, that's not good. You know, you have someone come in who's suicidal and you're not being sympathetic to them, you, you could have just pushed that person over the edge. You know, you really could have. I mean, I've had, I've had patients call me in the middle of the night on the on-call phone saying, my medication is making me feel some type of way. And I can pick up that phone and I can call Dr. Shaw and ask him what needs to happen. Because I'm not going to give them instructions with their medication because I'm not the doctor. But I will ask him what needs to happen. And he's not upset. He, doesn't bother. he tells me what to do. I tell them what to do. And then the next day, he will actually pick up the phone and personally call them himself. You know, a lot of psychiatrists will not do that. They'll have an office staff person call, or they'll have the nurse call, or they'll have the, the clinical director call. Dr. Shaw will call them personally himself. He will call the foster parent person themselves if, they, if they're having side effects of medication with the children. He will call directly himself. So that's why we're just so particular about who we choose, that I have to see passion for the, that's, that's the only way to work in this field. You don't get rich in this field. There's no way you're going to get rich, you know, but you get rich from inside. You get rich from, from what you've done for someone, you know. I had a lady on the phone the other day. I, she was crying, and she was like, I feel so excited. I don't want to kill myself. I don't want to die. And I'm sitting there going, I'm just now getting ready to go back to school for this. So I don't know what I'm supposed to tell you. But I talked her through it, and, you know, and, and I, I talked her through everything. I did a suicide plan with her. I had her promise me she was not going to hurt herself till I got in touch with Dr. Shaw and called her back, and she did. And when she, I called her back and she answered the phone, I was so elated. I was so happy because I was nervous. Did I do the right thing, you know, is this person? But there have been so many times when they've called other, they've been with other agencies or called someone else, and the person was just like, well, the doctor's not in it. You're just going to have to wait till Monday or something like that. And, you know, and then the next thing you know, that person either ends up in the hospital or ends up hurting themselves or someone else. So it's really, um, it's one of the things where my business partner and I, we handpick everyone that works for us, from the front desk person all the way to any volunteers that we use. We handpick everyone. And, but it's, it's a wonderful job. I mean, it's, it's, it's rare that you get to do what you love and get paid for it. <laughs> you know, and I love working with people, always have. My grandmother always said, you know, that if there was somebody on the block that nobody wanted to play with, nobody wanted to be around, she was like, Sherry, you're going to pick them up. I would bring kids home. I would, I would bring kids home and let them take a shower at my grandmother's house. I would promise them that their hair would get fixed. Now, mind y'all, I couldn't do hair. <laughs> so my sister would come in the house, and I'd be like, oh, you got to braid some hair. <laughs> and she would be like, how do you? <laughs> well, she was four years older than me, so she had to do what I said. <laughs> Because I was the baby, and they had to do what I said. But, you know, that was me. That, that's what I always did. If, if, someone, if someone, you know, was hungry, I'd bring them in because my grandmother was always cooking. So I knew there was always going to be food. I never worried about the type of things that some people worried about. I never worried if I was going to walk in the house and there was not, not any food. I never worried if I was going to get home and my grandparents was not there. I don't know what I would have done if one of my grandparents had died when I was younger. Because I didn't, I, I don't, I still, my grandfather died five years ago. When I go home, I still go looking for him sometimes. Because I forget. Because he was there for so long. He was 98. He was 98. So he was there for so long. And they were there. And they were there for everybody in the neighborhood. We was the neighborhood house. 
You know, we was that one house in the neighborhood that everybody came to. So it was this destiny, I think, for me, because everybody came there because I brought them there. <laughs> you know, they, they could take a bath. They could take a shower. They would, I would give them brand new clothes. You know, my, my sister would do their hair. We'd send them on their way. And that was, that was what we did. So I, my sister always tell me now, she said, girl, you was a foster parent when you was 10. <laughs> she said, when you was 10, you were just taking it at everybody. So that's, and you know, and that's just kind of been my, my, my thing in the field. Um, I've had cousins who was mentally ill. I never had any problem spending time with them. I would go sit down and spend a whole day talking to them. And my, my, you know, my sister would say, did you understand anything that was being said? No, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed it because to see to see a smile on his face because everybody else just passed him by. But when he saw me coming, there was a big smile because he knew I was going to sit down and talk to him. I may not have understood anything that was going on, but I was going to sit down and talk to him. And that's, uh, that's always been what I love doing. Uh, so I have a love for this field. I have a love for, for, for people who, who need someone. I have a love for people who want help. Um, most people who are mentally ill, they want to learn coping skills. They want help. They don't want to have all these people with them. They don't want to, you know, have Johnny, Susan, Bobby, and Mike up in their heads. They, they don't want that, you know. And if you can only imagine, just imagine one day and every all day long, you have stuff going on in your head. You have someone telling you to hurt yourself. You have someone telling you to hurt someone else. You have someone telling you you're, 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 you're a loser. You have someone telling you you're no good. You have someone telling you all these different things. And you're trying to, you're trying to get all these voices to be quiet. You know, Just on any given day, you're just trying to get all these voices to be quiet. And if you can imagine living every day like that, it really makes you stop and say, wow. You know, and there are videos on um, YouTube that you guys, if, if you ever care to, go watch. And it shows you what a day is like in the mind of someone who's schizophrenic or what a day is like in the mind of someone who's bipolar. And when I first saw it, I was like, wow, that is really, really, you know, because someone said hello to him. And what he heard was, oh, you're a loser. You know, someone said, how's your day? And what he heard was, you should go kill yourself. You're no good. So it's just, it's just, you know. So I enjoy the fact that we can be there and we can be that, that buffer between them and those voices. We can be that buffer between them and all the bad stuff that people try to do to them. And I'm going to tell you, if you ever want to see a tiger out of his cage, you let somebody do something to one of my clients. You know, I've, I've, I have... I have ha had no problem going into court and telling the judge what I think. I've been threatened <laughs> with contempt before, but I've, I don't have any problem because people have to understand mental illness. You have to understand it in order to, to, to judge it. You can't judge it if you don't understand it. You can't judge a person if you don't know what they're going through. You know? And you don't have to live it, but you, you need to understand it. So I'm very protective. Angela is very protective. We are the mother hens, and that, they can call us that all day long, and I don't mind. Call us the mother hen all day long because we're going to protect our clients, and we're not going to let a police arrest someone for no reason. We're not going to let family members lock them away for no reason. We're not going to let a parent beat a child for no reason. It's just not something we're going to allow. So we are big advocates. 
We go to all our state trainings. We make sure we know, we keep up with everything that's going on. As you guys may not know, Mecklenburg County is going through this big uproar with their mental health system. And so all of that is coming up under Cardinal, which is um, out, of, out of Concord, that area. So there's gonna be some changes around how we work with the clients, but we are determined to make sure that the client doesn't see a difference that they have no idea that there's something different going on. And that's the key. Do I have any questions? Or did I talk too much? <laughs> yes. Sure. Okay. Well, the clothing closet. Um, in foster care, we tend to get kids straight from Mecklenburg County when they've went in with a mad dash with the police and removed children. And they come to us usually with nothing but the clothes on their backs. Um, and we have to put them in a home. And a lot of times the foster parents are, they, they, they don't even have the, the, the knowledge of the child's size, age, you know, any of that. Um, so this clothing closet is, is, is there so that any foster parent, and it's not just connections, um, we've decided we're not gonna limit it just to connections, but they will have to register with us um, to come in. But to, to have at least a week's worth of clothes so that we can get that child through the week. I'm gonna tell you, one of the main thing, this, things that I've always had a problem with was when children grow from one foster home to another foster home or come into care with these plastic bags, with these trash bags. Children are not trash. And they should not be made to feel that way with these bags. So when I was a foster parent, the first thing I did when a child came into my home was give them a suitcase. This is yours, you can keep it, right? That was the first thing I did. Even if they had nothing to put in it, I gave them a suitcase. Because you have to feel like your stuff is important. You don't, you don't, you don't want them to feel like their stuff is trash. Um, I've had kids come into care with no shoes, no underwear, or what they had was just so little it was cutting off their circulation. Um, I've actually had two young ladies come into care, and I believe they had clothes, but the mom refused to give it to DSS. Um, DSS budget doesn't allow for the... Um, clothing vouchers the way they used to do. They used to do clothing vouchers. They could give the foster parent this voucher, and the foster parent would go to um, JCPenney and shop for the kids. But they stopped that a long time ago. Um, the economy. So they stopped that a long time ago. So what we have is we have babies coming into care with no pampers, you know, kids coming into care without even a book bag, without school supplies, without underwear, without toothbrush, without toothpaste, without something to clean their hair, or the little girls, you know, not even having enough to, you know, no earrings, no, just stuff to make them feel good about themselves. So the way we're working that is that when someone come in to get something out of the clothing closet, like a foster parent come in and they need some clothes for a child, they sign something that, say, that states that in the near future, they will replenish some stuff. It may not be the same thing, but they'll put some stuff back. And that's, that's how we hope to keep the clothing closet going 
so that the foster parents can bring things and donate stuff. And, and so there's always some more there for other, for other foster parents. Um, we do not get a lot of babies, but DSS does get a lot of babies. And a lot of times I've had them call, we've had emails to go around and say, does anybody have any six to eight months, six to nine month clothes for a little boy or something like that? Um, and so you, we find that they're looking for this stuff and it's just, it, there's nowhere to find it. They just, they don't have it. Um, recently, Jimboree, out of the blue, sent this box to my office. And someone was like, Miss Sherry, did you order something from Jimboree? And I was like, Jimboree? My baby, 19 years old. <laughs> so I opened this box, and Jimboree had sent us these clothes. They had tags on it. And I don't even know where they got our name from. I don't know how they got my name. But it was, it was a huge box, and it was addressed to me, and it was right on time because I had just had a sibling group come in that had one outfit each and no underwear, no socks, no t-shirts, nothing. So it was right on time, and we were able to give them enough clothes out of there to get them through the week. So that's, you know, the, the clothing closet really, I, I, you guys have no idea how much I appreciate you. <laughs> it is, I, I just thank you from the bottom of my heart because it's not just going to help the foster parents from Connection, but it's going to help the foster parent from any other agency that may need that help. And they will have to sign something saying, at some point, we will bring something and put it back. Because that's the only way to keep it going is that people keep donating. And so um, we will have their names and their address and everything. And we will periodically send out postcards just reminding them, hey, the closing closet need this and the closing closet need that. It will be manned and, um, and run by a few of my foster parents. So they are going to make sure that we know exactly what's in there at all times. And anything that, that's needed, we'll send, we'll send postcards out to existing foster parents who have actually used the closing closet to say, hey, we need this, we need that. You know, new or gently used, please. If you're doing underwear, make sure they're new. If you're doing socks, make sure they're new. You know, things like that. We don't want to use underwear. I won't use underwear. So that's, you know, I, so I surely, surely appreciate it. We've been trying to do this for years. So when I got the call um, from Erica, I was just ecstatic. I was like, we've been trying to do this for a long time. So, um, and one of my foster parents had just been speaking to me about it, and she, she was really interested in doing it. And so the next day, I'm at home in my pajamas, <laughs> and I get this call, and it was like it was just supposed to happen. It's like this was the time, and it was just supposed to happen. Any other questions? Well, I thank you for taking the time to listen to me. If you have any questions, um, our phone numbers are on, on that brochure, and I'll give you one of my cards. Um, my cell number is on it as well. If you're interested in being a foster parent or if you're interested in just learning some more, meeting my staff, what have you. Um, we do a lot of different things um, to make sure that people understand and to do um, education. On, in May, we do what's called um, the 50 Shades of Green. Green is the color of, of mental health. And so we have a, um, a program in which we, pass it around, we have a program in which we, um, we, we educate. Um, a lot of times we have the therapist, yeah, we have the therapist and, and the psychiatrist um, 
come out and, and talk with folks. And we invite the community in to learn more about mental illness and, and what it means and what it looks like. Um, and we do that every year on um, May 9th, um, regardless of what day of the week May 9th fall on, even if it falls on a Saturday, we still do that. And then at the end of the event, we, we have all these green balloons and we let the children go out with the green balloons and let them go. Um, and, and, and that's um, one of the things to bring awareness. That's, that's one of our awareness um, projects that we do. Um, and then in December, we always have a foster parent appreciation celebration because I don't think foster parents are told enough how much people appreciate them. I think they're, you know, people are very quick to come down on foster parent, but I think that people need to be just as quick to say, hey, we appreciate what you do because you're doing this from the kindness of your heart. And that's what matters. <laughs>